on the difference between compassion and loving-kindness when we review the wholesome qualities of the mind. Loving-kindness, goodwill, I should call it goodwill, that is the true translation of metta. This quality exists in every wholesome mind state. So loving-kindness or goodwill, that goodness of the heart is already contained in compassion. But compassion directs itself to the dukkha, the suffering of another being or of oneself. It brought me to reflect upon and recall that my parents survived the Holocaust, but their families did not the horrors that we're seeing at the residential schools were the horrors that my own family members experienced so many decades ago. My grandfather was a skilled and well-known builder. He was offered freedom if he would build for the perpetrators of these atrocities, if he would create things for them. And what he chose to do was to me an example of spiritual heroism. He chose to go to his death with his family members. And he perished holding his little granddaughter. And I hold that image in my heart with so much compassion for their suffering. But in that, I must also hold compassion for those who perpetrated that suffering, because karmically, their suffering will be far worse. And this is the grandness, the enormity of the Buddha's teaching, because he speaks to the journey of human beings, but also to the journey of all beings. There are so many realms. We are in one realm, in an enormous cosmic universe that we cannot fathom. And this is called samsara. And in these various realms, beings circle. And they're circling, our circling, we are among those beings Our circling from realm to realm very much depends on how we choose to live, how we choose to function in the realm that we're in. Animals and beings in lower realms don't have much choice. Animals, some fare better than others, but they follow their animal nature. Human beings are clever, but they're not necessarily wise. 
And so when we have the opportunity to grow in wisdom, we start to get an inkling of what the results of our actions are. And when we see beautiful results, if we want to live up to the moral fabric of the human being, who is in fact a spiritual being on a human journey, then we must choose morally well. And this is where metta comes in, is to choose that which supports the best in us. But it must also support the best in others as far as we can possibly judge or know. And many of us don't have the wisdom. Most of us don't have that wisdom. We're not trained in, the, in these ways. We're trained to do well in the functional world, in the consumer world, in the world of pleasure, avoiding pain and gaining pleasure. That's what we're trained to do well. And by and by, hopefully, we also begin to realize that there's a wholeness in that. There's a vacuity in that. There's a death in that. Goodness is easily deadened by such a, a circling. And we have the opportunity as students of the Dharma, of Dhamma, to realize there is something very sublime for us to penetrate through to and understand. And the Buddha presents it far better than any other teacher that I've encountered. But there are many teachers who touch upon this, no doubt, and many who realize. And this is for us a tremendous gift and a way to get out of the cycle of birth and death, birth and death, birth, suffering and death. Because even beings in the higher realms who may choose the pleasures that, that are available to them, and the human birth is, is considered a very fortuitous one in terms of realizing the truth. Because there's just the right mixture of suffering and not non-suffering. But even those beings in higher realms may not choose that well. And if they have not realized the escape, the danger, and the escape from all this gratification and pleasure-seeking that we can get caught up in, then they can fall down again into a lower realm. And that's where the circling comes in. But those of us who follow the moral path and are able to understand the profundity of perfecting compassion and wisdom bear no ill will to anyone, to any being, because we fully trust in the law of karma. We trust this law more than we trust 
any other law. We may not be able to understand the law of karma. The Buddha says it plainly that anyone who would try to understand the law of karma will go mad. So let us not go mad trying to understand what is not possible for a mere, mere worldling to understand. But let us understand that which has been given for us to develop understanding. And that is a teaching on the Four Noble Truths. So compassion contains in it metta, goodwill. Metta seeks the well-being of others, well-being of ourselves. It's actually a wish for, an intention for, a reaching out to support others so that they're well, they continue in well-being. But compassion is a more difficult way of reaching out. Many beings are unable to look at dukkha, at suffering, don't want to know about dukkha. But if we were to hide from dukkha, then we would be unable to realize the Four Noble Truths, because suffering is our teacher. So when we see somebody sitting on the street begging, can we just walk past feeling nothing? Or do we stop and offer something if we can? I know that experience because, <laughs> because I have stood on the street many a times with my alms bowl, empty alms bowl, as a beggar, and stood there and stood there and many people walked by. And of course, as an alms mendicant, one is devoted to the practice of developing these four sublime abidings, that is, goodwill, compassion, appreciative joy, being able to appreciate the joy and happiness that we have, but also that others have, and then equanimity. Equanimity with all conditions, whatever is transpiring, to sustain balance of mind in the face of that. So I remember many a times how much of a practice of mindfulness it was for me to stand there with my empty bowl and watch people going backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards, busy. You stand on the street in front of a shop, <laughs> trying to be practical too. People would go in and out and never put anything in my bowl and sometimes it would be so late and I would be nervous that I wouldn't get anything. But as it turned out, I always got something. Rare time and never in Canada that I didn't get 
anything in my alms bowl. But one time I remember contemplating the empty bowl because if I were to descend into negativity, into critical mind about these people walking past, how are they to know? Nobody teaches or didn't used to be taught in the grade schools or the high schools or even in the colleges that Buddhist monks and nuns might appear on your street with a bowl and you should put something in it so they can have something to eat. Nobody was taught that. But my thoughts would often go into a critical mode. Isn't anybody compassionate here? Instead of practicing compassion, I was having a critical mind that these people had no compassion for me standing here with my empty bowl. But I would try to be mindful and not dwell in those kind of thoughts and realize, well, they don't know. They just don't know what this is. Some of them might be afraid, scared. Who is that person? I think I should be moved along by the police because dressed in sheets and with a bald head, scary to look at. What is that? I remember once being with my father. I went with him to a grocery store and there was a policeman standing outside the store and he looked at me and he said to his friend, what's that? In a very mean way. And I felt so torn apart. Why do they have to say that? But compassion would not shiver. Compassion would not tremble out of fear or aversion in the face of that. Compassion actually means anukampa is another word for karuna, and it means the trembling of the heart. So compassion would not tremble to hear those kind of words. Compassion would tremble to feel the ignorance of those people who could speak in such a nasty way while wearing the uniform of a public servant. I had to restrain my father from saying a nasty word to the policeman because he got upset by it. He was very protective of his nun, daughter. It was extremely inspiring the way he defended me and protected and kind of showed me off. One time when I visited him in the hospital, I was sitting with him and the nurse came in and he said to her, this is my daughter with so much pride. And I could see the look of, I don't want to say disgust, but it was dismay of some sort in her face. We give ourselves away so quickly by our facial language, our body language. We have been somehow bred on a diet of critical mind and fearing that which we don't know and reacting negatively to whatever is unfamiliar or strange when we should know better. And so then we have this legacy of so many children 
treated as they were, so many families destroyed as they were. This is history repeating itself again and again and again. Where does it stop? It stops with each of us when we practice that trembling of the heart. It's a trembling of the heart that doesn't cower with fear or shrivel with anger and disapproval, but it stops with the heart that reflects, contemplates the human condition and knows that beings are ignorant. We are wedded to ignorance and we're trying to disentangle ourselves from it. This is the most difficult thing we could do. Then how can we practice these sublime attitudes of mind? They are sublime. Compassion is a sublime attitude. If we can raise up in the moment when we notice blame or a critical mind, to be that aware and that heedful, that mindful in the moment of our attitude of mind, then we can swiftly abandon it and turn the mind to that which is beautiful and pure, that which will heal us and help us escape from our ignorance, help us vanquish it so that we don't keep repeating history ourselves in our small ways, maybe. But these small ways, as a conglomerate, in a group, or as, as a race, or as a species, is deadly. These small ways are deadly. Let us not kill the goodness. Let us be so mindful that we don't kill the goodness. The word for goodness in Pali is kusala, kusala kamma. We want to develop this wholesome quality in us at every moment. At every moment to keep the mind in a wholesome state. That's our project. If it's, we start out with goodwill, if we see suffering, we try to bring goodwill to that rather than bringing a critical mind to that. And then, once we have that goodwill established, so it's really strong because the mind has become more steadfast, more trained, more disciplined, more restrained, more content with what is good, and not believing that there's some experience out there which has gratification at the end of it that is better than just the development, and I shouldn't say just, I should say something far more superior, which is the development of the pure heart, the development of morality, of a heart that is virtuous, that is harmless, heroic in the good, and knows the joy and the happiness of that, which is unexcelled. What joy is there that can match kindness? when it involves sense pleasure. We can't compare them. Kindness and kusala 
and knowledge. Those three K's. To know where the mind is abiding, to know suffering if it's there and if it's not there, to realize the origin of that suffering if it is there. Now we have two noble truths already functioning, already working within us. Already we have the tool, the pathway, the door is in front of us, we just have to walk through that gate and we'll realize the ending of that suffering. Those are the first three noble truths. We can bring suffering to an end in us by cultivating this path of purification. And the Buddha gives us a pathway, that's the fourth noble truth. It's the way to end, the way to free ourselves from that suffering. Compassion is the way that we bear it. The way that we can hold it, see it not only for ourselves but for others and take responsibility for it. So that we don't ever intentionally increase suffering for ourselves or any beings. That's a high mandate. That's the summons for a hero, a spiritual hero. Let us be heroic. Otherwise, we're only going to settle for what we know is less. We know it. We know when we don't live up to what we value. When we ransom the goodness for gratification, we know that we're selling out. So we have to train ourselves. To, oftentimes it's just habit. The force of our habit is so powerful. That's why we need precepts. We need a ladder to hold on to so we can let go the dross and the impure. Purification doesn't happen just like that. We need a path, a training, rules, precepts, rails like a train keeps on its track because it has tracks. We stay on the highway because there's a line that guides us. There, there's a, a roadway. So we must treasure this path and all that the Buddha offers us in it to stay on the path for our own freedom, for our own happiness, for the truest happiness. Otherwise, the option is we're going to just keep circling round and round, watching the horrors that human beings can commit. Helpless to stop that, because the ignorance is also boundless. But that is no reason for us not to develop wisdom and compassion in our own lives. Along with this goodwill and this appreciative joy. Look at the harm that an emotion like jealousy can cause. If we don't learn to develop the appreciation for the goodness or the joy, the happiness, the success of other people. 
Jealousy is so destructive. It, it is full of aversion. It's full of ill will. There's no good will in jealousy, in envy. And the harm that we create can be so subtle. And that's why we develop the investigation, the factor, the quality of the investigative mind to dig deep within us. We are like archaeologists of the mind. We're digging, but we're digging for gold. We might find a lot of rubbish. That's okay. The moment we find it, we set it aside and we keep digging, then we find a golden nugget and we grow it. We grow all these beautiful qualities and we share them. Beautiful qualities of mind. We grow them and share them and strengthen them and then they carry us along. They are like a current against the habit mind, against the old ways of thinking and seeing and working. We see in a new way. We transform our way of knowing, our way of perceiving ourselves in the world. It's a huge transformation. And we must be very patient with ourselves when it doesn't happen instantly. We want teabag dhamma. It doesn't work. It is not instant. And it's not always the flavor we want. This is hard work to unravel, to look at our lives, to open the heart to all of that with forgiveness and compassion and grow up, take responsibility. And aditana, aditana means we determine, we make a determination to go in the ways that will free the heart, not in the ways that will imprison us further. And if we need help, we get help. We join a Sangha. We practice every day. Like Lynn was talking about learning chanting. I remember living in, I lived in the most beautiful place in New Zealand, right near the ocean, three minute walk from my doorstep. And every day I would walk up and down the beach with a sweet dog that lived with my neighbor. And I would chant different suttas. And I was trying to memorize the chants. And every time I forgot where I was, because, you know, mindfulness, a lot of times when you space out and your mind is elsewhere and you're watching the waves and you're looking for the dog, and you're seeing the beautiful shell and you want it. So I made an aditana, like a determination. Okay, if I lose my place in the chant, I'm going to start from the beginning. Oh my goodness, all over. Now some of these chants are quite long. So I'd have to start all over again. If you have to start all over again, you really learn to pay attention to the chant and to learn the meaning of it and then you reflect on the meaning, and then you're chanting for all those wonderful beings that went before us, that walked the path before us and became arahants, and proved that this practice is doable. And we just walk in their footsteps. 
But it's so hard. It's hard work. Do you know how hard people work for their sense pleasures? To earn the money to buy the Tesla car? They work so hard for that. Why can't we work that hard to free our minds from delusion? We can't even put it in the same sentence. They're incomparable, the importance. Incomparable. So we're lucky, we're blessed. And that in itself is a foundation, a support, a buoy to be grateful for gratitude to arise. And if we're grateful, if we have gratitude, right away in that gratitude, there is goodwill, there's metta in that. So if we can be grateful, we won't be jealous, we won't be angry, we won't be afraid of the bear. We'll be able to walk through the forest to our dwelling place with gratitude that we have a dwelling place with gratitude for the leaves that are left on the trees, even though the gypsy caterpillars have eaten so many of the leaves, they left us quite a few. We're going to be grateful for what's left so that we can continue living here and practicing instead of moaning about all the disasters. This is just going to continue because there is so much ignorance so it should light a fire in us to practice with even more urgency and not put other things first. Suffering is a fierce teacher, teaching us the value of seclusion, of patience, of restraint, if we can get the message. But it's a cruel teacher. Suffering in this world is boundless. But there is also the escape from it. And these attitudes of mind which will help us to cultivate and grow the means to escape from this suffering, these attitudes are boundless. They are more boundless than any dukkha. I never thought it would be possible for us to survive here alone like this. But we're not alone. We have all of you. We have a Sangha. We have people in, in many places who support us and care about us, even if they can't come here and help us take care of the place right now. But I'm grateful for this. Suffering teaches us what we're capable of. And when it's harder than you ever thought it was possible, you also see what you have in you is more than you ever thought is possible. I offer that for your reflection today.